welcome. We are back on the See For Yourself podcast. I am your host, Arliss Johnson. I'm joined here today with Marmy. Marmy, that's a lovely name. Today's film is a 1991 film by David Cronenberg, and it is entitled Naked Lunch. And I'm going to just give you a quick little synopsis of what the movie might be about. The movie, as the plot summary surmises, is... After developing an addiction to the substance he uses to kill bugs, an exterminator accidentally kills his wife and becomes involved in a secret government plot. And that is the the plot of the film. I've already shown you some of the uh, promotional material, specifically the cover art for the box. I did want to ask you just really quickly if any of the actors that are sort of the main actors in this film sort of jump out at you. I know that you're a little bit better with actor names than I am. I'm terrible with names. I only really do faces. So I'll just name off a couple of the actors. We have Peter Weller, Judy Davis, Ian Holm, Julian Sands, and Roy... I'm going to give it a shot. Roy Shader? Shider? Any of those names jump out at you? Not really. So for some reason, Judy Davis sounds familiar to me. And I saw that name and I just thought, well, maybe Marmy might have something for me there. But maybe I... we're thinking of Gina Davis. We had talked oh, about no, that. Oh, no, it is Gina Davis. Of... <laughs> yeah, that's what we were talking about the other day. I thought the same thing when you said Judy Davis, I thought. Gina Davis? Yeah. You're so much smarter than me, Marmy. You, no, caught, you nailed it immediately. Okay, so the name of the movie is Naked Lunch. And this is a pretty common thing we like to do on the podcast. Naked Lunch. Does anything about that title jump out at you? Is there anything that makes you think immediately? Uh, what kind of assumptions do you have about the movie based on the title? Well, not what you read about the movie. That doesn't jump out at It doesn't me really connect with the title, no, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah. But well, let's just, let's imagine I didn't read the blurb, and what does the title by itself in a vacuum kind of say to you? I would say the word naked, maybe just laying it all out there. Mm-hmm. For everyone to see, sure. So, sort of just like a uh, like a exposed lunch, like exactly. It's, it's just it's just very honest. It's it's out there. It's not trying to hide anything here. That's what I think. Okay, and then lunch, obviously, just sort of the meal. Right. Right. Okay. Will there be any nudity in this film? I don't think so. We're going to go ahead and call it at a no. Uh, no. It was made in 1991, so, you know, the possibility on, could be. There There are a couple of, you know, those those nine, the crazy 90s. Yes. I, I tend to agree with you, so probably should have done this a little bit sooner. This is a movie that I have seen quite some time ago, but it is a, a favorite of mine. And Marmy, I'm prone to believe that you have not seen this film. No, I have not. Although it's, it's very possible you might have seen it and just not known. A lot of times that sort of happens. No, I have not seen it. Okay, okay. Well, that's... I, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you. David Cronenberg, are you familiar with any of his films at all? Just what we have talked about. Just what you have taught me. Anything about that that stands out in your memory? Not in relation to this. Okay. I know that you admire him. I'm a, I'm a pretty big David Cronenberg fan. I know that uh, he recently had a film that I went to see and I was a little bit disappointed with it. Crimes of the Future was the name of the movie. And I know you haven't seen that one either mm-hmm. and probably no one saw this this movie. It's uh, uh, It's got, uh, what's his name? The guy who played Aragorn, Viggo Mortensen. It's got him in the movie and uh, I believe there's a new scene of him in that movie so david cronenberg's not above doing a nude scene okay uh, well he's, he's not above it see um, we may see some nude scenes then well it's it's i'm just i'm just putting it out there and i'm not asking you to change your prediction because i think it's a very astute <laughs> observation of, on your behalf i showed you the what would be basically like the dvd or the vhs cover art for this film and you you said that it reminded you of liza minnelli right can you can you explain a little bit more about that i think because of the jazz hands and mm-hmm. the hat kind of 
of reminded me of a musical or something that she would have been in. I know for me it reminds me of a particular artistic piece. The name of the piece is The Son of Man by Rene, and it uh, it looks like this. Oh. So that's what it reminds me of with the hat and the face being covered up by sort of an everyday object. It's just that painting of a, of a man with an apple in front of his face. And he's sort of in like a tie and he's got a little bowler hat on. It reminds me of that for some reason. I don't know if that's what they were going for, but the cover for this movie sort of just has that man with his hands in front of where his mouth might be, but his entire face is covered by a typewriter. And then his the top of his head is covered by sort of a fedora or a bowler hat, something like that. Do you think that the typewriter will play a role at all in this film? I think that it might. What sort of role? I mean, it doesn't get brought up in the blurb at all. It's sort of just a weird, weird random detail in the cover art. Well, if he is dealing with other countries that he might sell this information to. Sure, a government plot typically has something to do with information exchange. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. What, uh, what sort of government plots have you seen in movies that you think maybe this movie might have a similar thing going on there? Right offhand, I can't think of any. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of different movies that have like some kind of a scheme of sorts, but it rarely ever is labeled as an outright government plot, right? They they rarely ever tell you, like, this is just straight up the government scheming something and this person's sort of involved with it. So I get that. Sometimes you don't get that clear, like, oh, this is a this is a government plot. Right. You, you pointed out the fashion style of the, the hat, uh, and I feel like maybe that sort of fedora slash uh, bowler kind of hat style might indicate the setting of this film. Do you think that... What, what, what time frame do you think this movie's set in? Is it in the future, the past, a certain date? Well, the graphics on that... I think, or probably about the time period that it was made. So 1991? Yes. Okay. Is there any events in uh, in history that you were like, this movie might be sort of referencing this, sort of a... I can't think of any. I know that there was a large amount of, what is it called? The War on Drugs were really was a really profound thing that was happening. Um, maybe not directly starting in 1991, but a little bit before, and then it sort of ramped up a little bit after, and just sort of in that quasi kind of time frame. Do you think this movie's sort of referencing that, perhaps? Because remember, he you know he starts doing drugs, and then all these other things start happening. That's sort of the first it's thing that's mentioned in the book. It's a good possibility. That sounds like it could be. I know that, you know, sort of the big villain of the, uh, the war on drugs was uh, sort of quickly labeled Richard Nixon. Do you think we'll get a Richard Nixon character in this movie? Or sort of a parable to Richard Nixon, maybe not him specifically. No, just leave him out. Yes. I think I think that's the smarter way of going about it. I think that's probably it. Would be a little too on the nose, right? <laughs> Do you think that of of the drugs that he's using, will any of them be familiar to us, or will it just be some otherworldly crazy nonsense? I think it'll be things we'll recognize. There've been a lot of drugs in films and films about drugs and things, so you know we have somewhat of an understanding of what that might look like and you're saying that you think you'll be able to see it and go okay i've seen something kind of like this in a movie before right okay why do you think he kills his wife well it's a lot of possibilities i think maybe she had found him out oh yeah she discovered his his drug addiction that's a pretty good reason to kill your wife <laughs> in a movie <laughs> in a movie <laughs> only in movies uh, yeah no i agree like that's a you know maybe he's strung out on the drugs she comes home and sees him doing them and he has a big reaction and that makes sense right i like that that's a you're making some very down-to-earth predictions what's what's the wildest thing you can imagine seeing in this movie what's the thing that you're going to see and you're just going to be like wow this really blew my pants off Hmm. because you know i wouldn't i wouldn't bring something to you unless there's something in it that's just wild well maybe he was having an affair okay that's a good one 
Maybe that, she caught him having an affair. And that comes up a lot in movies. We love coming, walking in on people having an affair. We rarely ever get, if ever, usually in films, the way it goes is the woman is having the affair and the guy comes in on it and then he learn, he, he leaves her and learns to like be a better man as a result of some wild adventure he goes on. Rarely do we get the woman comes in on the man and then the man reacts immediately to like the woman coming in in a negative way in such a way that like he kills her that's that that's a pretty rare thing to see in well a movie. maybe she stole his drugs oh that could be he, she, she messed with his drugs somehow and now mm-hmm. he's upset about that and, and coming after her you know it does seem like at least the way the blurb is written that this is sort of just like the the way that his story gets started off it's not like a big to do how long do you think we'll spend with him like doing the drugs and killing his wife do you think it'll be like an hour of the movie 15 minutes of the movie i don't think they'll spend a lot of time yeah. On that. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that feeling as well from the blurb. It seems like it's sort of just a uh, quick in and out kind of the McDonald's drive through of, of spousal murder, you know, just really quick, you know, get in, get out, have her murdered, get on to the good stuff after that, right? Well, then there could come the investigation that's going to uncover a lot of things that we weren't expecting. Sure, yeah. There's a lot of like hidden things here or maybe the investigation sort of leads into the government plot somehow, you know. He gets involved with something more... uh, Sinister. Sinister, yeah, yeah. I like that prediction. I know that you're not familiar with David Cronenberg's work very much. He directed the film The Fly, if you're familiar with that one at all, with uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yes. A lot of people read The Fly as a discussion on the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, that's how they choose to read that movie. While I'm not one way or the other on the movie uh, in terms of reading it as, you know, a discussion on the AIDS epidemic or you could also easily argue that it's sort of a discussion on the way that uh, people treated lepers or the way that they treated radiation victims from nuclear fallout. That would have been a thing in like the 1940s that maybe was being discussed at the time. There's a lot of really interesting ways that we have treated really poorly disfigured people in some way. Disfigurement and the way that we treat uh, disfigured people is a thing that David Cronenberg is willing to talk about in that movie. Do you think this movie will talk about that at all, or this this will be just something that, like, completely unconnected? Could be. Could be. He could have been using his wife as a guinea pig. Maybe he didn't murder her, like stab her with a knife, but things that he was experimenting with. With the drugs and whatnot. With the drugs. Mm-hmm. She just, he was using them on her, and she just happened to die. Yeah, it like seems like... Like a guinea pig. It seems like a pretty horrifying way for that to go down and david cronenberg is a really really smart director he's always he's always finding new and interesting ways to challenge his audience that's something that i fear a lot especially with this newer movie and, and being so openly vocal about how i didn't have a very good time with the movie i'm genuinely worried that the movie was just too challenging for me and that i'm not smart enough to catch all of the different nuances that he's throwing at his audience in this no. newest film remember the fly is considered a masterpiece this is considered a, a wonderfully powerful film and it was what like 70s 80s it was made or whatever naked lunch another movie i love that i think there's a lot of nuance to and a lot of interesting things going on and i apologize for the blurb not having a whole lot in it i i i'm willing to recognize that another very nuanced film and these movies were made 20 30 years ago right you know 40 years ago 
And so now he is this masterful director. He has a son who also directs now, and he's probably had a pretty heavy hand in teaching him various directing things and whatnot. Uh, his son made a movie called uh, Antiviral. So he's made movies of his own that are now popular and, and well-loved and also very, very smart. I worry that even with Naked Lunch, because I, again, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, I do worry that uh, this is another one of his movies that maybe I'm just not smart enough to catch. So I'm very, very excited to get to experience this movie with you. And I know that you're you're a clever one. You, you've got... You've got that 2500 vision. You can see into these sorts of things. And I, I trust you to catch things that I'm not going to... I, I'm not having caught before and I'm not even going to catch now. I, I trust you for that. Okay. It's a lot of, I'm, I'm, a lot of responsibility I'm putting on you here. I think I'm going to be surprised. I, I, I'm, I'm excited for you to have this good experience. Naked Lunch is one of the movies that I consider to be just a, a must-watch for any person, and I know that you're going to like it. I probably should have mentioned this earlier. It's sort of in that noir sort of crime style, and I know that was a lot more popular back in the day, and we don't get as many of those types of movies now, and it's really frustrating because it is a, such a cool and flavorful and moody kind of genre of film. I did want to say this before we go on to the movie. Naked Lunch, while I do believe this is a must-watch movie, and it's something that people should just be aware of, it is one of the few movies that we will cover on uh, our, this podcast that isn't readily available to the public. We try really, really hard to find movies that are either completely free for people to watch and just available for anybody, anytime, always, as long as you have an internet connection, you can find this movie for free or it's on some sort of streaming website that you can you know make a fake little email account and have a free week of netflix hulu whatever have you and watch the movie that we're talking about this will not be the case with this movie and it really hurts my heart to do that but i do think it is something that we should put out there and that people should be made aware of this isn't really one of those movies that like can be spoiled for you per se if you know david cronenberg's work you kind of know what you're getting into here he's just one of those weird directors who's very consistent about the stuff he likes to put in his movies so the, the stuff that you could say is spoilable really isn't all that spoilable if you're familiar at all with david cronenberg i will say i'm, I'm looking forward to watching this with you so we're just going to go ahead and cut this here, and we'll go right into the movie, and uh, and we'll return afterwards. I'm excited. I can't wait. I'm excited. Let's do uh, it. Double excited. Yes. know that there's a lot of opinions here a lot of things to be said i feel like we could talk about this movie for forever i just want to open the floor to you marmy what, what do you got what are you what are you thinking well i was wondering about the question that we had talked about the nudity i was sure there wasn't going to be an a and roy schneider roy who Sch never i've never seen him nude before there he is He's the one. That's where the nudity came in. It was a shocker. So it did. It did kind of come out of nowhere there, right at the end of the movie. We we were so close. We were, we were so, so close. close. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> We were maybe maybe five more minutes, I and know, we would have gotten I out scot free. I know. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's not Roy Roy Scheider himself's body that we get to see. It is him performing the role exactly. Um, but it's it's that one actress who played the sort of stereotypical foreign right, the sort of stereotypical foreign person. And the other part that I thought was interesting that they kind of just threw in was that it was in Marrakesh, and there I, I've always read and watched shows about a lot of older gay men live in Marrakesh. So I wasn't really surprised to see that part of it, although it, I don't know how they were throwing that in to fit in, but it didn't surprise me to see it in there. So, okay, we'll just jump right into that, I guess. The aspect of this movie that covers 
homosexuality as a topic and as like a, a lifestyle and everything wildly interesting and especially in a 1991 film can you think of any movies from that time period that would have even talked about that kind of thing no and I, I think that actually it was like it was un- unacceptable like if you made a movie about that the producers or the the MPAA or some other such group would have said no you can't do this you cannot have this in a movie that's right and the movie took place in 1953 yes when I would think that most of the people weren't sure what a homosexual was. Or even if they knew what it was, they didn't really like have that kind of casual talking style about it. Right. Because it did seem like in the movie they did they did bring it up pretty casually. Yeah, it was very casual and during that time period it wouldn't have been a I'm, casual thing. I can't speak to how the discussion style would have been at the time. I'm, I'm not 100% certain. It is the kind of thing that I would love to do more research on. We do sort of like to do that where either in the past we try to imagine that the past is just like how it is now or we look to the past and we like to think that it's totally different. I think this is one of those cases where I'm leaning more, well, it's kind of like how it is now, and I think you're leaning more, it was totally different. So I'm, I'm not 100% on this one, and obviously I'd like to yield the correct answer to you in this case, but I would. this is the kind of thing I would love to do more research and see just how people really did talk about things like being a closeted homosexual in the 1950s or an outspoken homosexual in the 1950s, and how that exactly, what's the dialogue like for that? Yeah, I I mean, I grew up, that's when I grew up, was in the 50s, Hmm. but it wasn't wasn't any conversation about it, period. Well, as a young girl in the 50s, right? right. Who's going to come up to a young girl? I don't imagine they're going out of their way to have those kinds of conversations with a young girl. Not at all. Or or even in the proximity of a young girl. Right. Right. Now in in 1991, when it was made, yes, it would have been. Certainly a lot more so. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things in the movie. He goes to that bar. That's the first sort of time where it's really brought up. And it kind of hits you like a ton of bricks. Right? Yeah, that, you're not expecting it at That all. young, beautiful man just comes up to him and right. says, hey, are, are you are you gay? Yeah, and they did use beautiful men. Oh, yes. Gorgeous men in this movie. Just right. Wonderfully beautiful men constantly throughout. Yeah, I love that. That was that was nice. We all love to see a good, gorgeous man. Yes. Not to say that, you know, Judy Davis wasn't a beautiful woman, or the lovely lady whose name is escaping me at the time, at this time, who gave us our, our wonderful nude scene. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, ma'am. <laughs> Rather unfortunate, the complete and distinct lack of nude scenes for men in this film. But I think in the 1990s, even that would have been a wild and crazy thing to include in the movie. Yeah. But, I bet it would have been nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if we're going to ask the ladies to get naked, let's ask the men to. You know, why Let's go not? for it. Oof. There's so much to talk about in this movie. Just so much. Before we get too far away from it, I do want to say... This movie was a lot more challenging than I remember it being. (laughs) I do remember it being challenging. I do remember it having a lot of really juicy stuff to talk about. But most of that, I thought, was kind of just uh, David Cronenberg's love for doing sort of practical effects. You know, those those big, weird-looking alien creatures and the the bug typewriter thing. Well, I enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed that. And I thought that was very artistic. And I was trying to think how his mind, what he was thinking when he was directing that. I, I thought it was very good. I know I know that he loves doing that, and it kind of pops up in just about all of his movies, where he puts these sort of weird practical effect creatures in the movies. It is a movie based on a book. There's a book called Naked Lunch, and it sort of, I guess, has its own thing. I've, I've never read the book, and I imagine you probably haven't either. No. 
Um, so I can't be certain how much of this is like David Cronenberg was picked because the book had so many things in it that he would be perfect for bringing to life with his various animatronics mm-hmm. and practical effects and whatnot. Or if it's just, this is a very normal book about like a detective kind of guy who happens to do drugs and hallucinate things. And they were like, hallucinate weird things. Well, David Cronenberg can make weird things. I don't know uh, which came good, first. Uh, yeah, which came first. But boy, I, I kudos to the writer because that's quite an imagination. Yeah, I'm somewhat unfamiliar with his work, but it does sort of seem like... Did you did you get the feeling that this movie might be sort of autobiographical for the writer? Oh, yes. Because a lot of it is about the writing process yes. and becoming a writer and, you know, getting into and that. that was an, it was a lot of that mm-hmm. in there, yes. Was there was there anything about that that sort of stood out to you that you were just... Like, where was the aha moment where you're like, oh, this is all a big metaphor for writing? Um, I don't think so much that as the hallucinations was what... I was just fixated on okay that uh I never thought you know a hallucination could be that that much do you have a scene in mind that you're like thinking of specifically i I think well when it started was with the typewriter sure yeah but when the centipedes uh, I'm getting off track here but the centipedes too I love the way they put that in. It was in the decorations. Mm-hmm. It was in the jewelry that they wore. It yeah. was it was everywhere. I thought that was great. I uh, I also really like that. I think, and I and this is maybe just because I've seen this movie a couple of times, maybe. But I think that the 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 bug centipede kind of aesthetic or or thing there, it's supposed to indicate to us as an audience that this is something that he sees as foreign or strange or just different in general the beautiful uh men would wear these centipede necklaces and sort of coming to grips with his homosexuality was like something that's strange to him that maybe he doesn't really understand that well it's also really hard to tell how many of his stories are just him like saying something strange to grab the attention of somebody or if he's regaling a real life incident because he tells that story about how like yes uh the the lee men have always been Right. Uh, perverts and uh, he, he's saying that his family has a long line of right. homosexuality in it and that he's when he f- realized that that was you know part of his identity he felt that it was a bane on him and that it wasn't until a, a beautiful older queen came up to him and he told him you know you have to wear this this badge proudly on yourself and let the world know that this is who you are and living openly and honestly is what he's sort of preaching to him and then he talks about how that person died sort of tragically. And not only tragically, but in a way that's sort of humiliating, like, to think about. Yes. I think that's the only thing for me that said 1953 was that. The story of Bobo? When the older man, well, you know, was telling them that. And when he called his relatives perverts. Mm. That that would have been... That's how you would talk about that's, it. That's yeah. how it would have been. Yeah, you wouldn't have said they were all fabulous gay men. You would say right. that they were all they were all plagued with a certain proclivity for similar-minded individuals in the male community. Right. And all this fancy flowery language is just you saying they were all gay. Right. I think I think you're right. That is probably more akin to how it would be spoken about. Mm-hmm. Just that trying not to say it exactly kind of kind of speech. 
Right. The metaphor that jumps out at me as almost like it's specifically trying to talk about being a writer is the, what is it, Judy Davis's character. He turns to her and he'll say, well, it's time for us to do our, do our William Thoreau. Yeah. Was it William Thoreau? I can't I remember. I think that's what it's it was. It's time for us to do our impression. Yeah. And she goes, oh, okay. And she takes a, a glass and puts it on her head and then he takes his pistol and he fires it William at her. William Tell. Oh, was it William? William Tell. Okay. Remember, he shot the apple. Right, right. Yes. He shot the glass, but not the glass or forehead. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that's supposed to be a metaphor for what it's like to, to write a, a book. Is you Writing a book is like telling a loved one to put an apple on their head and that you'll shoot it off with an arrow. But instead of the arrow hitting the apple, it hits their head and then tragedy. And that's sort of what the I think the movie is trying to say is that this is supposed to be a metaphor for being a writer is you have to create these like over-the-top extravagant dramatic moments and then you just go to a new place or go to a new topic or what have you and you just do it again and you're supposed to just keep doing that and people go well show us show us that you can do it and then you have to you know okay you show them you have these big dramatic moments inside of you even if they're completely fabricated and nonsensical right i don't think you would even understand it. Being a writer, you may not even understand because you're basically all alone. And it's just what your hands can write down and what your brain can come up with. I mean, that's there's nothing else involved in it. It's, yeah. it's all you. In one of the first scenes in the movie, that's basically all they do is talk about that. Yeah. You know, It's just these two guys sitting next to each other and one of them says, well, rewriting is a sin. You're lying to your audience. Your most primal thoughts are the first ones that come out of you. Right. And the other one's like, well, no, I, I feel shame whenever I write and I don't rewrite. If I don't rewrite, I'm not giving the audience the best thing I can possibly give them. And then they turn to uh, Bill Lee, our main character, and they ask him, well, what do you think? And he's like, oh, I haven't written since I was 10. It's too dangerous. I'm an exterminator now. Which is, which is him saying that writing is more dangerous than killing. Right. Wildly, wildly interesting take on the the dangers of writing. I tell you. This, this, I'll probably be thinking about this movie all night and for days yet to come. There's so much to think about. Well, yeah, and and that's just the subject matter, you know. The the visual metaphors were insane as well. Magical. The number of... They uh, were unbelievable. I never thought I could be so off-put by a typewriter. The number of times that, you know, they just add these, like, weird fixtures or these stalks or udders or protuberances, and then they, you know, they move or grow or shift around, or even the time when they were just typing on the typewriter, but the the little keys were sort of rubbery. Rubbery. That was off-putting as all get out. Very, very intense. Odd. Seeing the people, because that's that's what it was, is the magworms or whatever they were calling them. They had this like drug in their like head udders, you know, and it's yeah. it's obviously meant to be somewhat sexual, and it's sort of like a visual metaphor for homosexuality and things. And I can't tell if they were trying to trying to have a conversation about how like the public views being a homosexual as some sort of a drug, like oh, if you decide to start being gay. You know, it's going to take over your mind and you're not, you're going to not going to be able to think properly and things like that. It's a good possibility. I, I, I don't know if that's what they were trying to get at or not, but it makes me think of that type of rhetoric from back in the day. Right. Where it wasn't. The... That's something they would have thought back when they made them, when it was taking place. Yeah. And it's, and it's crazy that like now we can look back on the movie and they say things like faggot or, or chink or whatever. And we're like, well, that's not great. 
but we don't really, it's not as easy to think about like, well, but the issues of the time and language of the time, an issue of the time would be that people would think of being gay as, as like being in a cult or being in on drugs or something like that. These fantastical, crazy sort of metaphors for if you're gay, these are the things that are going to happen to you. And now it's now we know that that's not the case. And looking back on this, in 1991, this might have been a pretty liberating kind of movie for a young homosexual to watch and think, oh, they're sort of satirizing and lampooning these crazy government, you right. know, or societally based ideas of what it means to be gay. Yeah. Boy, we need to talk to the writer of this book. I think I think we should get a copy of the book and, and try to give it a read. Yeah. You're a lot faster a reader than I am, so I'll... I'll get it to you, and then, you know, when you're done with it, you can you can tell me if it's all gobbledygook or if it's, you know. <laughs> wow. I like how they reused actors, actually. That was really cool to me. Yes! They would, yes! They would have an actor play multiple different what? roles. And I, I thought was that shocked. was Yeah. You, didn't, you don't see that a whole lot. No. But uh, I love seeing it when I do. Yeah. I like that, too. Judy Davis got two different roles, and I want to say that the uh, the cops at the beginning that pull him aside and have him talk to the little bug typewriter thing for the first time are the same people at the end and. that uh, stop him and ask him to enter Russia. I think he's entering yeah. effectively Russia. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe that is a, a part of, of Russia or something that I'm just unfamiliar with. I'm fully willing to accept I'm just ignorant of that. <laughs> he was on the run. He yeah. wasn't slowing down. I thought it was I thought it was interesting how compliant he was sometimes and how other times he was very violent. His first reaction with the typewriter was just, okay, I'm going to take my shoe and kill this thing. And then the next yeah. time he sees one, it's like, hey, can you just type some words into me? And he, he, he was backing away and he was grabbing a wine bottle to smash it with. And then he's like, can you just type some words into me? And he's like, well, okay, I can lower my defenses and come over and type some words into you. Yeah. <laughs> where did that come from and he just like i, I don't know I, I think it it might be commentary on how if you're you know you're high on drugs long enough maybe you become a little more compliant or maybe you i don't know i'm not sure why he did that exactly because in my head i'm like no he's gonna he hasn't changed any to, like whack him with a bottle yeah whack him with a bottle or run out like both yeah. of those seem like reasonable things to do <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it would make sense as a good progression right like maybe the first time you whack him with your shoe and then the second time you just you just walk away then third time you're like well i've seen enough of these things i've gotten a little more comfortable okay i'll type on you or i'll do the thing you're asking me to <laughs> yeah. and then he breathes on the centipede and kills him yeah so i guess that's supposed to be in my mind i'm thinking like he is so high on these like these bug killing things that right. he's you know injecting into that himself his cells are full of it yeah just, he's just yeah, even just breathe it's like a, right you can give a breathalyzer and the alcohol in your breath will come yeah. out you know so maybe it's the same with this is yeah. what i that's how I interpreted it. <laughs> but it's also interesting given what we've talked about with like the bugs sort of being a symbol of what is foreign to him. And specifically homosexuality is one of the things that right. he considers sort of foreign. Maybe breathing on it like that or, you know, I, I don't know. If, if, if you consider that he's taking this drug that is an anti-bug drug and that the bugs represent homosexuality, there's some sort of discussion trying to be made here about are we creating situations where people have to ingest anti-homosexual rhetoric and then throughout your life you're just sort of always in that anti-homosexual mind state the typewriter even says something like that where he's like i can't tell because the things that he's saying are supposed to be like pro-homosexuality we'd like it if you would imbibe in this and enjoy it emotionally or maybe even physically the homosexuality can be good for an agent the best cover you can have is to be a homosexual. Are we supposed to read that as 
the movie is being pro-homosexual, or are we reading this as there are times where even a government entity will try to be pro-homosexual, but in reality they're just doing that for their own benefit? What do you think the birdcage scene Mm. was all about? So specifically when he walks into the room and they're making those very sexy noises, and we come into this... This big centipede man sort of digging his claws into the beautiful young man. That's a really good question. It's certainly probably the most explicit sex scene we get in the movie. We get a sex scene earlier in the movie where his wife is having sex with somebody, but it's kind of just happening to the side. The movie doesn't really go in on it. It's not very affectionately Mm. done. Whereas this sex scene, and it's pretty clearly a sex scene of some kind, is very visceral. It's very in your face. There's a lot of like leading up to it and it stays on it for a couple of seconds and it's pretty jarring. It is very jarring, and it just, it affected him so much. Yeah. I feel really bad for the character of Kiki, that that beautiful young man. Yes. He clearly wanted to be helpful and had some some feelings for I think they could have had a relationship, a good one, and I think Bill was filling that. And I, Yeah, and I think he sort of takes advantage of him in a way by basically giving him over to the older yeah. man. Or the, I don't know if he's older, he's just kind of the wealthy man. He, he did use him. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know if he, maybe he didn't respect Kiki, or maybe, again, it could just be all the drugs and whatnot. There's a good question to be asked here about... What is, we've talked about this on the podcast quite a bit, this is one of my favorite things to bring up, what is a diegetic concept in the film and what is a non-diegetic concept? And diegetic normally applies only to sound or music. Sometimes when you're watching a movie, there'll be a jukebox playing a song and everybody in the scene will be kind of dancing along to the jukebox. They can all hear it in the scene. That's called diegetic music. Non-diegetic music is like when Spider-Man's swinging from the ceilings and and whatnot, and he's the, the scene's opening up and it's got that big... That's not the right, but you know. But he doesn't hear that. He doesn't hear it. That's just there just, for the audience for to hear. Yeah, that's non-diegetic music. It's not actually there's not actually a sound system playing in Spider-Man's ear or like a a big announcement sort of going across New York City's like skyline right. that's you know playing that music. It's just sort of for our entertainment purposes. There are some scenes that I think are meant to be understood metaphorically, and there are ones that are, I think, supposed to be understood as, like, this is his understanding of it hallucinogenically, and it's not meant to be understood literally this way. Right. You know, he has that sort of, he's fooling around with Joan, and that sort of flippy floppy butt jellyfish thing falls on top of him and her. Yeah, yeah. And they're sort of touching it a little bit, but they're mostly ignoring it in the scene. And then later it's revealed that that thing, whatever it was in that moment, actually was the typewriter later. Right. So how often were there scenes like that where it kind of did sort of create a feeling in you like, okay, what I was watching just now wasn't literally on screen or what have you. There are some bad examples of this, like when they go to take his typewriter and they're like, take it. They close the door so it can't escape. Right. But a typewriter can't run away. (laughs) So why would that happen? Because he was hallucinating. Yeah. So there's some times where it doesn't make perfect sense exactly. It's not like a one for one thing. Right. Well, I... After I thought about it for a while, I thought I thought he was really getting into the young man, but then he used him to get back with Joan. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, he just like threw him under the bus, like, I, I want to get to her. But then even when he had Joan, he just used her for the, the one, like the metaphor for writing, basically. Right. And he killed her off the same way he killed the previous Joan. 
Right. So, you know, did he actually want to be with Joan? Is Bill Lee the type of character that we can even think about in terms of romance and or sexuality? Or is he just someone who sexuality happens around him and he doesn't actually care about these things one way or the other? Yeah. I think all he thinks about is writing. I, I think that's a perfectly fair way to interpret his character. Right. But he's hooked on drugs. Yeah. Which... So he has to fight those demons. And a lot of writers, you know, I've read about writers that do either use alcohol or drugs to stimulate their writing. Yeah, absolutely. That's sometimes even very clear right. sometimes when you're you know, getting into these sorts of really high, strange concepts, and you're like, wow, this is some crazy stuff. And then years later, you'll find out, oh, the guy was on coke the entire time. That right. explains that. I think one of the most prolific examples of that is uh, Stephen King. We know now pretty much for a fact that Stephen King did a ton of coke all the time he was writing all of his best stuff. He refuses to admit that now. He's very adamant about like, no, no, not really. Or at least admit it in its like full scope. I know that one of the biggest problems I have, I don't like Stephen King and I've come into a lot of like difficulty with that with some of my contemporaries and a lot of people in my sphere of discussion are very big Stephen King fans and I am not one of them. The It movies, you know, with uh, the clown character Pennywise, very popular movies you know they've made them you know on, on multiple different occasions now sort of inevitably when these movies are coming back out or into popularity again they sort of get Stephen King for an interview and without fail they bring up one particular scene in those books that does not make it into the movies and it's sort of the plot of the film is they have to go into the sewer to catch Pennywise and stop him from killing people and whatnot right and when they do they have to leave the sewers now but they don't really know how to get out Pennywise sort of corralled them into his little lair and they just followed him and now they don't know how to leave. They're, they've lost their way. And in the movies, they sort of find their way out by some way, or they don't even bring it up as an issue at all. They just walk on out like it's like it's their house. They know exactly how to get out of the sewers. Kids playing in the sewer these days. But in the in the books, they have a... These are all children. All the characters are like 9, 10, 15, that type of age range. And they all have a, a sewer orgy. They just all start having sex with each other. <laughs> this is written by Stephen King. It's in, the, it's in the book. Craziest thing you've ever read in your life. And in the interviews, they'll ask him, like, do you think that that scene will make it in? And he's like, no, I don't think they'll ever put it in the movies or nothing. He's cognizant enough to recognize that nobody wants to <laughs> shoot that. But when they ask him, like, well, why did you why did you write it then? That's kind of an odd scene. Why'd you, why would you write that? He'll explain it instead of saying, hey, I was high on coke. I wrote some wild stuff. It's probably not great now, but, you know, drugs. He doesn't say that. Instead, he'll say, well, I needed to have a scene in there that proved that the kids had become adults now. They're adults now. They're they're grown up. They've passed that rite of passage, you know, and, and this was a, also a good way to show that they understood what love was. And I'm like, uh, no. wow, Stephen King, uh, <laughs> it's crazy of you to endorse sewer orgies as a way of <laughs> expressing love and your go-to way of expressing love. <laughs> Oh, he must have been hallucinating. Yeah. So now when you, I mean, I know you said earlier that, you know, you felt like, well, that's, I've never thought of hallucinating to work that way. Well, Stephen King, while clearly hallucinating on something, wrote a child sex orgy in his coming of age story for children. Jesus. And he's unwilling to this day. As far as I know, I mean, I could be proven wrong any day now. As far as I know, he has not been willing to admit that was an impossibly wrong thing to write in a, in a book ever. Right. Um, now and even then 
Like, right. there are some things where you can say, like, okay, well, in the 90s, they might have said very offensive words or something like that. I don't think in the 90s they were like, kid sex orgies are cool, everybody. Right. That I was don't not, think so either. I don't, I don't think that would have flown. I don't even think in the 50s that would have flown. No. <laughs> Especially not then. Yeah. It was like a bunch of Puritans running around. I genuinely don't understand. And when I explain this to people... Not all the time do they go, oh, I didn't know that. I was wrong about Stephen King. He's clearly some kind of a crazy person. Not all the time will they do that. Sometimes they'll actually try to defend him. They'll like, oh, you know. God. He's just writing some stuff he thinks is provocative. Come on. Well, you're certainly correct. That is very provocative. I'll give you that. Talk about shock value. Yeah, yeah. Even more than uh, <laughs> more than all of the, the slurs we got in this movie, you know. <laughs> And again, you know, it's set in the 1950s. I'm sure people will be saying slurs left and right. So they, they had maybe, what, three or four instances of slurs in this movie? So I think they were pretty light-handed with it. Right. They weren't, they weren't you know, taking full advantage. No, not at all. What was that thing he would say all the time where he would be like, uh, you dig? Ah. <laughs> oh. was, was I the only one hearing him say, you dig? That, and thinking, was, that oh. was definitely a 50s thing. Do you think he was going to say... You digging it? Did he, did he ever say daddy-o? I don't think I heard him say that, but he could have. It seems like the kind of thing that, that <laughs> he might could have. could have, yes. Might have. A couple of quotes that I just really liked in the movie. America's old, dirty, and evil. <laughs> I liked that. Yeah. I thought that was great. <laughs> old America. You know how Americans are? They want to travel. And wherever they travel, they just want to talk. Want to talk to other Americans? That <laughs> I'm glad you put that down because that was hysterical. It's the truth. Really? It is the truth. Yes. I've also experienced that, but I thought that was just because of, I, I experienced that through the service, and a lot of those people are young, and they're dumb, and they don't know what they're doing, but I know you've traveled a lot in your life, and you've been to different countries and whatnot. And I just think it has to be the fact that someone else is going to sit down and speak English with them. I think that has to be. Is the language barrier is I the think, big problem I think for them. it is. It seemed like most of the people in, well, I guess they were mostly talking to people that were not necessarily like natives of, what did they call it, the interzone. Right, right. Uh, they weren't They weren't talking to just like everyday people. They were expats people. or yeah. something. Yeah. They were talking to all the people who would like sort of tourists effectively. Right. So I guess that's why it felt like there were a lot of English speakers there. I find that in, in most other countries, most people speak more than one language and Admittedly, sometimes right. none of those are English. I mean, that's a lot more than we're doing over here. It's not like every single one of us speaks two or three languages or anything. No, but before you go somewhere, you should learn a few words. At least learn how to ask, can you speak English, please? Right. You know, hello, how are you? How much is it? Yeah. You know, key things. Yeah. A lot of people don't. No. They just rely on, I hope somebody around here is willing to complain with me about how there aren't any hamburgers in the area. <laughs> Where do they sell the guns and hamburgers? Where's the nearest McDonald's? Yeah. <laughs> Take me to where they make the real food. Burger King. <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> Easily one of my favorite lines in the movie. Very, very good. When they were talking about the the uh, injecting the, the bug spray drug, they describe it as a literary high, and then they say it's Kafka-esque. Makes you feel like a bug. At any point, have you tried to, like, imagine what that's like at all? No, not at all. Because the movie doesn't really give you that. He does the drug quite a bit, but doesn't ever really express him feeling like a bug. No, I didn't get that at all. The only thing I got is people that do drugs are willing to try anything if it'll get them high. They did say that they had tried that particular drug on a whim. 
And I wonder, like, is that just how all drugs are sort of discovered upon, you know? I, I believe so. You're just kind of sitting around, you know, you go into your backyard, you look around, you're like, I wonder what would happen if I put that in my mouth. I don't yeah, know. Look at that mushroom. It could be good. Could be fun. Yeah. And you start out, you want something that you can actually take home and eat. And then when you find out what it does to you, you go out in search of that particular one. In a way, it's kind of noble, you know. You're you're willing to explore and experiment. You're something of a scientist, you know. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure, you know, back in the day when we were, you know, cave people or what have you, that was a very, very, very cool thing you would do, you know, to have someone in the group that was just like, yeah, I'll try the thing. And if it kills me, you'll all will know. And if it's really, right. really great, we'll all know. And we yeah. can. But look how long they've been using opiates and things forever. Bat, bat, forever. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm willing to bet it was just based on someone going, I don't know, I'll eat this. Why not? I think so. Yeah, makes sense. Just happenstance. Are you familiar with Kafka? No. So Franz Kafka is a, he's an author, and he wrote a book called the, it's a short story, I guess, called The Metamorphosis, or I think it's just Metamorphosis. And it's a, just about a man who lives with his family, and they're very mean to him, they're very cruel, and he goes to work every day, and he just feels really small, and he's always getting, like, picked on by his family, and they're very mean to him. One day, on a particularly difficult day that he has, he wakes up and he's a cockroach. He finds that he had been turned into a cockroach overnight. Mm. So he's sort of scurrying around the room in a panic of sorts, trying to figure out what had happened to him or how to live his new life, I guess. His family members come into the room and they see him scurrying around down there and not recognizing him and being sort of vindictive people in general. They stomp on him and that's how the book ends. Do you think that there is a, they're trying to connect sort of a through line here where this movie sort of interconnected with Franz Kafka's work? I think so. It's interesting because it feels like they're kind of trying to say that the main character sort of feels pretty small. He feels, you know, in his wildest hallucinations, he's an agent, a a great man on a mission. And his homosexuality is like a a benefit to that. Because they said that too in in the Mm -hmm. movie. Yeah, that's how he imagines it. So this movie is kind of almost... The opposite of the metamorphosis, where in metamorphosis goes to sleep and imagines himself to be a bug, or he becomes a bug, or whichever happens, and then he's crushed for it. And in this, he doesn't become a bug. He sees bugs, and he experience, interacts with them, and he they make him into a cooler person than he is in real life. In real life, he's an exterminator, and he abandoned his dream of being a writer when he was 10, because he was scared of being honest, basically. Right. And, you know, when you're a homosexual, I imagine being honest in the 1950s, is a death sentence. Yeah, they could keep it a secret so much. So many married people, too. They had to live two lives. They said that earlier in the movie, too, where he says, I had a troubled past, but I'm married now. I'm straight. And you can't really tell if it means straight from drugs, but being married doesn't affect your ability to do drugs. No. But it... And, I mean, being married doesn't mean being straight. That's true, yeah. There's a lot of people who have... They call it, the word for it now is having a beard. Oh. Yeah, yeah. You have a beard, and uh, that's that's what you call your your wife. You just have her so that nobody suspects oh, you of being gay. I've never heard that. It's called so a beard. So today, yeah. that's my lesson. You learned you learned a new cool yes, thing. Yes, yeah. yes, I love that. Okay. I actually did not know that Marrakesh at some point was a like hot spot for older gay men. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've known about it for a long time. But I think when I first found out about it was reading about the art world or the design world. So is it is it possible that, like, because I know that a lot of times sort of the rhetoric is there's an idea of homoeroticism that's put on the arts. And a lot of times those 
the, the people will not be, or they will be, you know, it just depends. But sometimes they'll just sort of equate the two with, as being equal, right? If you're into the arts, you're also a homosexual. And that could just be like a cultural thing that we've come up with over the years, or it could that, be... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they land in certain, a lot it of could gay be. men. They love finer things. They love the arts. They, they like good stuff. Good clothing, good... That's what interests them. Well, I'm not saying all, but the ones I've known. And it could be because they feel that that's, you know, where they come across the most people who are accepting of them and willing to be kind to them and whatnot. And I imagine that, you know, when you work in theater and whatnot, and a lot of stage plays or a lot right. of, you know, these types of things are about these strange and high concepts that when you say, well, actually, I know I'm a guy, but I actually am attracted to guys. Most people are like, okay, look, we're performing Titus Andronicus this evening. And it's about a man who like gets his eyes stabbed out and has sex with his mother. And it's all this other crazy shit you being attracted to men not really blowing my mind here <laughs> maybe that's what it is i don't know i don't know but i i do know that you know i felt like a lot of them are interested in historic things sure yeah because and history is a lot kinder to the gay people the further you like the longer you go back the more it seems like it's just been a normal thing for the longest time and only in the last like 500 or so years have we just been terrible to them i know do you think that it's been a religious thing that Probably. has driven it? Yeah, I'd venture to say so. I think I think that could be it. They they've told you that no, this isn't good. This is not right. If you're going to be a good whatever religious person, you have to go against this. And it's and it's uh, Western religion too, because uh, even in like where a lot of China derives its religious beliefs and its you know sort of. And it's sort of like, where China derives a lot of its religious beliefs and its philosophies and whatnot. There are even stories of emperors who fell in love with men. And what is it? The, the story of the cut sleeve, where an emperor was in love with a common man. And they were in a field taking a nap. And when the emperor woke up, he saw that on his silk sleeve, the other man had fallen asleep. And so he cut his silk sleeve in order not to disturb the man. Do you think there was anything else you, you wanted to mention before we... You mentioned the, the nude scene with the thing, whatever. I thought that was going to be the nude scene. Oh, okay. With the... Yeah, with the, the jellyfish yeah. butt flapping thing. I thought yeah. that was going to be it. And I thought, oh, I can't be it. No, it's not. But then the, the other one wasn't real nude scene either. It was just yeah, prosthetics. I honestly, the more I look back on it, the more I'm certain that that the nude scene we actually got was completely unnecessary. Yeah, they could have just as just as well not had it at all. What if he revealed his chest and there was nothing there? It was just a man's right, chest. Right. You know, I'd, I'd be like, oh, okay, so it's he's a dude yeah. the whole time. You know, and they are. They could have left her clothes on and done and, it. Yeah, and just had so many different ways to do that. It feels somewhat unnecessary, I guess. But. <laughs> I guess they just... <laughs> a lot of that stuff was probably somebody would think was unnecessary, too. I don't know. You know, that's a good question. Do you think that there are parts of this movie that they didn't add anything to the movie and they were just sort of there to, like, make you feel like that's odd? I think you're right. I don't know. I don't know if that's what I'm trying to say. I, I, I don't want to put that on myself because I do think that a lot of the... But like, I think some of it could have been just buying time until... Yeah. I wonder if maybe the weird butt jellyfish thing was to like indicate... Because that thing is awkward and strange there. Was, and it's clearly got it, a butt. Right. Was it just there to let us know how awkward he was feeling? Like, 
groping on a woman because he's actually a homosexual and the way that that thing's so awkward is to help yeah. us understand that Could i don't been. that I don't makes know. sense and then the lady comes in and shames them for fooling around and and then she shoes off the little awkward thing and maybe now he feels a little bit better because maybe thankfully now he doesn't have to do this with a woman anymore right right and she shoes off the awkwardness because she's also shooing off the sex that they're about to have Right. I don't know. I can't say that 100... That does make sense, though. It doesn't feel like anything is like 100% just there to make you feel awkward. There's. It does feel like most of the stuff serves some kind of a purpose. Right. Maybe the, like, bug thing turning into a typewriter was mostly just there to, like, move the story along. It did feel kind of cool to have a weird bug typewriter fight thing happen. That it was did. cool. It did. Yeah, that was cool. Something you'd never... That's that's the one thing I will say for David Cronenberg. There are things in these movies that you'll never see in another movie as long as you live. When you think of making that, you know, it's very genius. Because even where I was looking, thinking that was the mouth. No, the mouth was over here. Mm -hmm. Because I was kind of looking down here. It was just, how do you come up with this stuff? How do you do it? Yeah, David Cronenberg has to be one of my favorite inspirations for... Just strange ideas. Visual and, art. Yeah, when, pe- when people say, like, this is how this has to be done, or it's going to go this way, or this is going to be what's going to be in it. And I always think about David Cronenberg and how all of his movies have stuff in them that are like, you would never imagine that that would be the way that it would go, or it would include that type of an image, or that type of a creature, or what have you. Right. And he finds a way to jam that stuff in just about every time. Really good imagination. Really, really good. Honestly, watching this movie makes me like the uh, the newer David Cronenberg movie a lot more. I really, it does reaffirm my belief that I'm just too stupid to really grasp why that newer movie is so good. And I, I think that's probably a good thing. Whenever a movie can challenge you so much that you're like, I'm just missing stuff in other parts of my life. I'm just not getting it. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Oh, good stuff. I do, I do want to both apologize probably to you and to previous people I've sort of had on the podcast. I did, going into this, I did kind of feel like, you know, you've seen probably more movies than anybody we've had on ever. A lot of the people I sort of pick to have on here are people who haven't seen a ton of movies. And I know that, you know, you've seen quite a few or certainly more than them. And I wanted to show you something that maybe you hadn't seen before because I always feel like people kind of get into these mindsets of movies can only be this or that right right? you know i'm always trying to break up that idea but i have a nasty tendency to especially you know the first go of it sort of go a little too far into crazy difficult films to really talk about and to really have like a good understanding of what happened exactly and really just difficult movies for people i know that uh the first movie I ever picked for this podcast was Nightingale. And the movie's just about, like, it's it's just a really difficult movie to watch. It's got, like, three or four rape scenes in the movie. And it's about, like, a women's uh, suffrage and the, the difficulty of the native people of, I want to say, Australia mm-hmm. um, or New Zealand. It might be Australia. I get them confused sometimes. And, and just how those people were decimated by colonizers and had a really tough go of it. And that movie's really hard to talk about. And the people... You know, God bless them, those people that I had for that first episode tried their best. They really did. But it's it's a hard movie to, like, get out of and be happy to have seen, you know? The kind of movie that you need, like, a week or two to sit on. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I, I tend to have, like, a more optimistic outlook on films. You know, I'm just so happy to see anything at all. And That's the truth. A lot of people are like, what did I just watch? It was, like, all about, you know, these weird 
fish aliens with penises on their foreheads and right. they shoot goo all over the place yeah. and that was gross and why would you make me watch that? I appreciate your uh, stick-to-itiveness to be able to sit through that entire film and have constructive and interesting things to say about it other than that was just really gross and I felt awkward the whole time. <laughs> no. Well, I was looking at it from a different perspective, too. You know, all the visual art, I, I'm thinking more that way. Sure. You know, I'm watching the movie, and I'm taking it in, but then when you see something that's so outlandish, you you have to just, you're glued to it. You can't take your eyes off of it. I will say the level of, like, ridiculously provocative, these, these images, and the, and, the, and the movie itself, there's, I don't love using that word provocative because it's being, being used so much now that it basically has no meaning anymore, but it, it, it's the kind of stuff that you, you want to see it and you want to talk about it, but you don't know why, and it's like a, it's like a train wreck. You just can't look away, <laughs> but it's not, I don't want to say it's like a train wreck because it's not like a bad thing or anything. It's, it's nice. It's, it's just really, again, just stuff you'll never see before or after. Right. And it's just really, whoa. I feel like this is probably the, the top of the mountain as far as weird stuff I'm going to show you, but I, I don't want to make that promise and then break it later, so. <laughs> Whenever people try to understand me, it's really hard for me to be like, oh, did you ever watch Naked Lunch? Yeah, I really like that movie, because no one's ever seen this movie. No, well, Paul pointed it out earlier. The movie made like $18 million, or the movie was... Cost that much. The movie cost $18 million, but it only made two and a, two and a half million or something like that. Right. Because, again, people don't want to be challenged. They don't want to see something that's kind of designed to sort of make you feel a little bit weird and a little bit awkward. They don't want to think about it. I think people don't want to use their mind. In movies like that, you have to use your mind. You can't just sit there and be entertained. Yeah, you can't just come and go. It's not It's yeah. not McDonald's. It's not right. Burger King. It's no. the same thing as Americans always want to watch movies, but they only want to go and see the movies that are just America movies. Right. And they're not challenging, difficult pieces, you know? Yeah. Did this movie remind you at all of anything like, uh, I know Casablanca, it, it, it gives sort of similar vibes to yeah, that. Yeah, same or... taking place at the same time. Sure, yeah. I think In the same place. I think Casablanca would have been... That I, like nineteen thirties or nineteen forties or something like that. In the forties, but yeah, still similar. Pretty close. It gave you that that same feeling. Yeah, um, I think they did a good job. I mean, if they if you didn't know they were in Marrakesh, they did a very good job. You knew where you were at. Yeah, yeah. All 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 of the the background and the the, the way that the people were dressed and right. all that stuff was very. It felt accurate. You know, yes. it felt. Felt good, felt appropriate. You knew that you weren't in America anymore. Right. I thought they did a good job, too. Well, I think that we have enough here that we can probably okay. call this a day. Sounds uh, great. It's uh, been fun. I've, I, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure talking with you, Marmy. Uh, I will, uh, we'll, we'll just go ahead and cut it here. Okay, sounds good. <laughs>